This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. After the final no, there comes a yes. And on that yes, the future world depends. No was the night. Yes is this present sun. If the rejected things, the things denied, slid over the Western cataract, yet one, one only, one thing that was firm even, no greater than a cricket's horn, no more than a thought to be rehearsed all day, a speech of the self that must sustain itself on speech, one thing remaining infallible would be enough. Ah, dolce campagna of that thing, dolce campagna honey in the heart, green in the body, out of a petty phrase, out of a thing believed, a thing affirmed, the form on the pillow humming while one sleeps, the aureole above the humming house. It can never be satisfied, the mind, never. This is Wallace Stevens, the well-dressed man with a beard. And I first came across this poem, um, actually just that last line in an essay about a total eclipse, solar eclipse by Annie Dillard. And in it, she's um, really laughing at the fact that the mind, which is so metaphysically ambitious, as she says, that the mind that wants to live forever, that wants the world to return its love or its awareness, the mind that wants to know everything will, if given the chance, settle for two eggs over easy. <laughs> and she's, she's in a diner right after the eclipse happened and filled really with the fullness, the mystery, the terror of that experience. And um, I was, in a, in a, and we had one here recently, but I was in a, in a total eclipse once in Mexico, and we were in the path of it. And it is um, uncanny, doesn't even reach what happens. Uh, there's, there's a point at which everything turns a color that has never been seen in this world. And um, you think, and, and she describes this, you actually do think that you have died and are in another world. And um, she's, she's talking about how the most unmooring, the most um, terrifying part of, of an eclipse is, the, is the, the shadow cone of the moon is moving at 1,800 miles an hour. And you, know, you can't even conceive of such a thing. She says when, when, when that happened, um, I don't remember where she was in California or Washington somewhere, people started screaming. And she says, you can't conceive of such a thing. You don't. It's too much for the mind to hold. And so you just give it an egg and it quiets down. <laughs> and um, Shoan had told me recently about this um, uh, exercise that she did with Chosen Roshi on mindful, mindful eating, and how um, she understood uh, her, her, 
love <laughs> of, of chocolate because the exercise was to hold in your mind a painful experience or a painful memory and then to eat something sweet and see what happened, you know, how the mind becomes pacified. And so I decided to, to try it. And so I was at home and I brought to mind a, a painful memory and I ate a little piece of chocolate and I was subdued, uh, pleasantly subdued, but I think I'm wired differently from Sean. You know, the, the, the almonds will be, would be safe <laughs> with me, <laughs> which she knows when we shared an office, the chocolate was kept in my drawer, not in hers. <laughs> so the chocolate was, was okay, but I could definitely still feel my painful feelings. So then I tried an apple and, <laughs> You know, there's, there's something about that, that freshness and the juiciness. It kind of just explodes in your mouth. And that was better. It worked, it worked better. I mean, I definitely saw the moment in which a painful feeling, an unpleasant feeling, was replaced with a pleasant one, which, of course, is exactly what addiction is. Though I don't think anybody gets addicted to apples. <laughs> but um, it's, it's exactly that, being unable, perhaps unwilling, to, to bear, to tolerate a painful feeling, we turn towards pleasure. And because it doesn't last, and because we become inured to it, we just need more and more and more. And so I thought, okay, well, let me just go all out. And I pulled out a bag of potato chips. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you want me to do anything for you, just give me something crunchy and salty and preferably hot. Um, and it, it was so clear to me in, in, in that moment, there was, no, there was no pain. There was no pain. It had been completely, you could say, replaced or, or subsumed um, by this, this, other, this other sensation. And so the mind... Uh, for instance, can be satisfied in that way. And Stephen says, no was the night, yes is the present sun. Without the night, the sun would not rise. Right? They, they need each other. And Karagiri Roshi said, in the relative, we're always responsible. In the absolute, we're always forgiven. And we're forgiven because in the absolute, there really is nothing to forgive. There's no transgression. There's no wrongdoing. There's no right doing either. But as we know, no one lives there. And so in the relative, we are always responsible. In the relative, the sun rises on our actions, our thoughts, our intent. <clears throat> and the sun rises every day, of course, but it is so often shadowed by clouds, by our mental formations. The thoughts, the stories that we create, the mind that is never satisfied is the creator of these stories. And yet, in moments of quiet, in moments of stillness, in moments of clarity, we see that the mind is naturally satisfied that it is naturally complete. The mind 
The mind that knows what it is, that knows what this is, does not hunger, does not lack. The mind that gets caught in rehearsing a thought all day does not know this, cannot know it, cannot, cannot come in contact with this truth. It thinks it must sustain itself through speech and feels threatened, deeply threatened, sometimes when it cannot do that. Just think, think of a period of zazen. Think of the, the fear, the anxiety that comes up when things do begin to quiet down. People speak of this all the time. Many years ago, my brother came, it was his, his first time, and uh, he spoke of the silence. He was, he was not very good at being quiet. And um, he, he spoke of, of his, his fear of it. And you know, he did beginning instruction, and he did zazen, and afterwards I asked him how it, how it went. And he said, whoever gave him beginning instruction forgot to tell him about the kyosaku. And so he was sitting there, and he just keeps seeing Jimon's shadow approaching with a stick. And he's thinking, is she going to hit me? Is she going to hit my sister? And so he spent the period kind of with an eye on Jimon, an eye on wherever I was, and, and singing Madonna songs in his head to fill, to fill the silence. So, so much for, for stillness and, and quiet for him. And I think of people who spend, you know, who spend a lot of time alone, maybe they work alone, and, and uh, get into the habit of talking to themselves. The electrician was doing that the other day. I was in the interview room, and he didn't know that. And he was having you know, a whole conversation with himself, with the building, the wires, <laughs> and um, the entrails, the entrails of our building. And I was, I was reflecting on that, and I was thinking, you know, we're relational beings. And first and foremost, we will relate to ourselves. And I was also thinking, but it's also a self-soothing act, right? If I'm talking, I'm still here. I'm still me, and everything is as it should be. <clears throat> In Body and Mind, Study of the Way, Master Dogen says, this boundless sky and entire earth are like unrecognized words, a voice from the deep. Words are all-inclusive. Mind is all-inclusive. Things are all-inclusive. And what does that mean, you know, that words are all-inclusive? Later he says that a moment or two of mind is a moment of mountains, rivers, and earth, or two moments of mountains, rivers, and earth. Is that the moment that you're standing looking at the mountain? Is it the moment that you're in the mountain? And do we see the same thing? When I say the word mountain, is what you see in your mind's eye the same, or is it different? Does it make a difference? For the uh, Beyond Fear of Differences work that we've been doing, I, I saw a, um, 
a TED talk by Chimamanda Ngozi, Ngozi Adichie. She's a Nigerian writer. She's speaking really of the danger of a single story and in a sense of the, the power and danger of words. And she was talking about um, after she, she published her first novel here in, in the United States, she was at a, at a university and um, giving a talk. And a, a student raised his hand and said, you know, I just read your novel, and it's really a shame that Nigerian men are physical abusers, like one of the, the characters in her novel. And she said to him, well, I just read American Psycho. <laughs> <laughs> And it's a shame that American men are serial killers. And uh, she said, you know, I have many stories of Americans, so I would never make such an assumption. She said, most people have one, two stories of Nigerians, Africans, you know, in general. And so it's very easy to extrapolate. And we do this all the time. That is what a stereotype is. Right? We, we lump, we take a few categories and we lump them and now we feel safe. I know who you are, you will not surprise me. Think of the many uh, unexamined stories we tell ourselves all the time. Women are provocative, men can't control themselves. Mexicans are lazy, Americans are loud, the British are proper. Native peoples in any continent are childlike. You know, they're naive. They don't understand progress. They don't know what's good for them. And when I went to college, I had just gotten to college, and this was a large metropolitan college in a large American city. A fellow student heard that I was from Mexico, and he asked me if, when I was growing up, if I went to school on a donkey. <laughs> <laughs> And I really wish I could think on my feet in those situations. Because, you know, I think I would have said, you know, I, I didn't go to school growing up. My father is the head of a cartel, and I'm going to take over. I'm taking over from him. And so this is really just all, all for show. And he, was, he wasn't kidding. I could tell from his uh, demeanor. He wasn't kidding. He really wanted to know. I mean, it's good. He really wanted to know. And what we say is what we believe, or what we come to believe. Words and phrases shape our view of the world, our view of ourselves. I am depressed. I'm not, no good at math, at art, at speaking. I know better than they do. I am right. And I have asked myself you many times, Sometimes, in the midst of conflict, often, most often, after. Would I rather be right, or would I rather be free? Now, I would rather be right. <laughs> I would rather be right. What about the I that brought me here, that brought me to practice, that wants to be free? How many I's are there? And I realize, at least for myself, that so much of that conflict 
is exactly that. It's not even with the other person at a certain point. At a certain point, I'm not even seeing the other person anymore. It's, it, is, it is establishing my ground, establishing my territory, and how difficult it is to not do that. And I, you know, every day, essentially, I'm, I'm vowing to be groundless or to find a different ground. And almost every day, at some moment, some part of me chooses to be right, to be secure. How long it takes to, to really shift that, to really trust, I suppose, to really trust that I don't need that ground anymore. There's a short poem by Szymborska, it's called The Three Oddest Words. When I pronounce the word future, the first syllable already belongs to the past. When I pronounce the word silence, I destroy it. When I pronounce the word nothing, I make something no non-being can hold. And I was thinking about what, what Shohan said yesterday. How difficult it is to say two, three, I guess if you, if you want to be technical about it, simple words, I'm sorry. And just keep it at that. Not I'm sorry, but. I'm sorry, but I didn't mean to. I'm sorry, but you didn't. Just, I'm sorry. How, how incredibly difficult it is to say these words simply and to really mean them. To, to stand in them, to let them be our ground. I just read a, a book on writing by Stephen King, and in it he's talking about um, really the toolbox that a writer needs in order to tell a story well. And you know, it's not a profound metaphor, but it's a practical one. It's a, a useful, a dependable one. I've used it myself. I think of you know, the, the various skillful means that we have as, as my toolbox. And it contains all the various implements that over the years, you know, some of them are universal, right? It's really understanding this is, this is suffering and this is how to alleviate it. But a lot of them are, are very particular to me, you know, to my quirks and my blind spots and my holes, those ruts that I, that I see myself falling into over and over again. And so I've, I've, over time, I've built, you could say, my, a kind of toolbox for them. And, you know, the thing about a toolbox is that it's, it's you know, you, you can see it, it's there. And so it's also, I think, part of it is, is finding a way to not forget or to make it easy to remember that you have it. Right? So, so Shugen Roshi so often speaks of practicing when it's easy. So that when it's hard, you have uh, everything at your disposal. And so you don't wait until things get really difficult to start rifling through your, your box. You, you're, you're using these tools every day, every day, so that they become second nature. And so when things, if something, you you're, meet something that is really challenging, at least you have some basic 
some basic tools, some basic implements to start working with. And of course, Zazen is the main one. And I was thinking about it recently. I mean, there's just the, the practical side of it, um, of just sitting down and being quiet and not creating, and how a day or two of that in itself can be so healing. I, I can be in, in a funk and spend you know, some dedicated time in Zazen, and then you know, by the end of it, ask myself, you know, what, what was that? What was I so upset about? And so some of it is just the stopping, the stopping of that wheel. But I was also t- thinking how it is, it is making contact with a, that different ground, with a source, that the more time you spend steeped in, in that, the easier it is then to access at other times. And of course, you know, the danger is that we would just, that we'll just repress. You know, if something comes up, that we'll use us and to just avoid it, to hunker down in that stillness and that silence and hope that it will just go away. But the thing is, it doesn't go away. And just as, as with addiction, that pleasant feeling just creates a, an overlay over that painful feeling. It doesn't deal with the, the source of the painful feeling to begin with. And so Zazen, if we're using it that way, ultimately will not change what it is that we ultimately, at some point, we will have to deal with, we will have to face. And it's, it's not uncommon for people to say, you know, I'm really struggling in my life. And then, you know, if you ask, well, are you sitting? Are you doing liturgy? Are you doing art practice, body practice? No, not really. And I understand, I, I very much understand the, the you know, some, if you don't feel well, for example, or if you feel overwhelmed, if you're, if you're tired, if you feel depleted, it's hard to, to muster the effort to turn towards what you know will help you. It can be very difficult. And so that is why practicing when it's easy so that you begin to notice when you're starting to, to go off balance, so that you can turn towards what will help you before it becomes too hard to do that. And so I know, you know, repressing or, or ignoring will not work. Maybe I need another tool to deal with it. Maybe I, I need liturgy, which to me, really works beyond words. It works before words. Even when it, in, when it uses, when it includes words, it is, it is um, demanding, it is asking that I engage reality with my whole being. And so, so again, very practically, it is, it is shifting a, a pattern that I may be, that I may have um, hardened over time just to begin to nudge it 
a little bit so that I can begin to, to respond differently. I think of things that I said to myself 20 years ago, you know, I really need to work on this. 20 years ago. And perhaps I'm just beginning to feel like, okay, there's some freedom here. Other things, I surprise myself. The thing that always gets to me, gets to me, and one day it just, it doesn't get to me. And I don't think it's coincidence. There's something happening, there's a, there's a shift happening, which most of the time I don't even understand. I don't need to understand. But I do need to practice. I use art, letting the stories of my mind you know, be, be expressed in that way. And it's not you know, that I, I'm kind of, although I would, sometimes I like the image, you know, thinking that I'm, I'm just you know, flinging paint on canvas and, and letting my feelings out that way. I think for me, it, it works actually um, as a container, as that, as that ground. Because the, the, you know, in my drawing, very occasionally painting, um, I'm, I'm really trying to, to express and ex explore, really, explore that stillness and that silence. To let everything come down to just the, the movement of my hand and the marks on that paper. To let each dot on that piece of paper be all-inclusive, be a moment or two of mind is a moment of mountains, rivers, and the earth. So, although there is something that, uh, you know, if I'm doing a drawing and I and I, I I end up with a with a finished product at the end, but if I'm really doing it. Mm, as practice, if I'm really doing it uh, in order to understand what that all-inclusiveness is, then, the, then the, the finished product is less important. And rarely, rarely I experience it in writing, but it's a little harder, I think, because it engages my, my intellect. It's harder to, to for me to find that, that stillness and that quiet within it. And uh, I read this, this story by James, about James Joyce, that um, you know, one day a friend of his comes in and he's just really dejected, laying on his desk. And his friend says, is it the work? And Joyce nods, you know, he doesn't even lift his head and said, well, how many words did you get today? And Joyce says, seven. And his friend says, but, but James, that's good for you. That's great. <laughs> and James Joyce says, yes, but I don't know what order they go in. <laughs> <laughs> I have felt that many times, especially in the, in, the, in the midst of an argument. And I know what I need to say. I don't know what order these words go in. I use body practice. I'm still learning. I feel like I'm still very much learning how to use my body. I thought I knew. And in one sense, I think even before I knew, some part of me knew. Some part of me understood that 
um, that stillness was one side, one, one form of that ground, and that movement was another. So after my mother died, sometimes it was, I had just, I had started sitting, but I had just started. And it was too hard sometimes to sit, to contain those feelings. And so I, I ran, I read and I ran. It's really what kept me sane that, that first year. And I used my, my body, you could say, as a, as a, well, really as a conduit. It, it, was, it was a way to allow my mind to catch up with my sadness, my confusion, you know, to come along with the body that somebody said to me moves seven times slower than the mind. So it was letting the body do what it knew how to do and letting the mind catch up to that. I like that line in that fascicle and Dogen says, the mind studies the way running barefoot who can get a glimpse of it. The mind studies the way turning somersaults. All things tumble over with it. The moment of, of movement in which everything is contained, everything, it, it's, it's that running is all inclusive and turning somersaults is all inclusive. That is the nature of an infallible thing. It never leaves anything out. I read, I study. I think, you know, I'm, I'm not a big food person. I think really books are my food. They're my rest. My, my, I turn to them for inspiration, for delight. And... Um, in a way, I have never been let down by a book. Even those books that, and I don't finish every book. I think, you know, there's just too many good books. Life is too short. So I give them about 50 pages. And if, if, it, if it doesn't catch, it doesn't catch. But even a book that I didn't like um, gives me a, um, it, it's an invitation into the mind of that person. Maybe I should finish them in that case if I want to really meet them. And so slowly and over time, I keep you know, adding tools. And I think also it's not, even, um, it's not even the numbers. I think just over time, we become better. We become better at using them. We gain facility, of course, like with anything else, with any discipline. It becomes more natural. And over time, we also um, learn more and more how to look for those things that we need ourselves. Right? So, so often, you know, when I'm when I'm stuck, you know, I, I will turn. You know, I will turn to my teacher. I will turn to the sangha, or I will turn, you know, to those who have done this before me. And it's the. Um, it's a wonderful feeling to find something, read words, where I think, yes, that's right. I may not have said it exactly in those words, but yes, 
This is what I see. And so if everything slides away, as Stephen says, what is that one thing? One thing remaining infallible would be enough. I think this is what we're all searching for, that one thing that will not let us down. You know, and most of us, you know, we, we turn to pleasure, we turn to status and to power and to relationship or a job that will give us security, our children. But at a certain point, we understand that that's like building a house on, on a single stilt in a bog or in, or in quicksand, or like building a skyscraper on a fault. You know, the, the slightest tremor and the whole thing threatens to come down. And it, I experience it that way. When, when these are the things that I have built my house on, the slightest insult, if you will, uh, and by that I mean an insult to, to my sense of me, myself, and the whole thing feels anything but safe. And so this this fault, and really it can, it can look, it can look like a hairline crack, but underneath it is a chasm. And I was looking as I was writing this at the, at the letter I, the word I in English. It is this hairline crack. There may not be another word in the language that has more power, the power to create and the power to destroy. Will it include or will it exclude? Will it divide or unite? And what is the shift that needs to happen in the mind to determine one or the other? This Doce Campagna, that honey in the heart, is a sweet country, a sweet country of that infallible thing, the thing that will not fall, that will not crumble doesn't leave you wanting. I think of it as that, <clears throat> that place, that state of being in which we can rest completely. And it made me think of, of the Buddha's words when he was, he goes off into the, into the countryside in Magadha, and he's looking, he's looking for a place in which to settle, in which to sit down and turn towards his own mind to do the work that he knew needed to be done, to see into, to see through this I. And he finds what he says is a, um, a, a pleasant grove, an agreeable piece of ground with a delightful river, clear flowing water. And he says to himself, this will serve for the striving of a person intent on striving. And I sat down there thinking, this will serve for striving. I've always loved that passage. You know, he understands that what he has to do will not be easy. He has to, because he's studied with all of these teachers. He's done all these um, extreme ascetic practices. He's been at the brink of death, and he understands that that did not free him. So now he's completely alone. Some, some uh, a scholar, I don't remember who, said he was probably in that moment, he was the loneliest man on earth. And he doesn't go into a cave. He doesn't go to any old field. He chooses deliberately a sweet spot, 
a sweet country, which of course in the end he finds in himself, he brings with himself wherever he goes. And yet, doesn't it help to create a space in which to do that initial turning, you know, just as we have done here? I was thinking of Dadaroshi, who 38 years on this week, give or take, found the monastery, found this place. And as the story goes, he um, got in through one of the, a broken window, through one of the windows in the dining hall. And I imagine him you know, coming up here and standing in the back of the, that hallway back of the zendo, maybe with his hands on his hips, maybe a cigarette you know, in his mouth, and, and thinking this place will do for striving. Probably not in those words. <laughs> but I can, I can imagine that feeling that he had. In the Maharat Nakuta Sutra, which is the Sutra of the Accumulation of Jewels, um, it's a collection of 49 Mahayana Sutras. And um, about 8th, 8th century was translated into Chinese. And in one of them, the Buddha is speaking to Mahakashapa, one of his main disciples, and he tells him that a forest dwelling practitioner who has secluded herself in order to practice, must follow the dharma of a forest dweller and perform eight deeds to show kindness for all beings, to benefit sentient beings, to gladden them, to not hate them, to be straightforward, to not discriminate, to be in harmony with all these sentient beings, to contemplate all dharmas, and to be as pure as space. He has echoes of the... Um, um, Karnaya Metta Sutta. And to me, these are the actions that create a sweet country. They're the, the tools in a practitioner's toolbox, you know, someone who is training to be a bodhisattva. They're, they're actions that both in their doing, in their, their practice of them, and in their fruit, show that the mind can be satisfied. And when that is our ground, then it is easy to be straightforward, to gladden beings, to wish them well-being. After the final no, there comes a yes. And on that yes, the future world depends. Totsi said to Zhao Zhou, a practitioner can't go by night. They have to arrive in daylight. At night, we can't see each other. In, in the night, we're all the same. But by day, we're different. At night, we're forgiven. By day, we're responsible. And so after that final no, a yes must follow. First, there are all the no's. That's in the Heart Sutra, no eye, no ear, no tongue, no nose, tongue, body, mind, no death, no suffering, no wisdom, no path. No, 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 no. I think this is, this is Zazen. 
Not this thought, not this movement, not this story, not right now. And sometimes people experience zazen or, or just a, our, our practice as cold and, and uninviting. And I've always thought of it as one of the most loving practices that I've ever encountered. All of these no's so that we can get to yes. That boundless sky and entire earth, which are unrecognized words, a voice from the deep. It's like a thundering voice with no sound, a word that has no meaning. And on this, yes, is not just the future, but this world and every world depends. And so this is what we're doing during Sashin, nodding our yeses. So we can get to that final, that all-inclusive, that incontrovertible yes. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.